This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nabil Biagio and here's what's coming up. I want to reassure Ugandans and all residents that the government has got capacity to control this outbreak as we have done it before. That's Uganda's President Yuvari Museveni trying to ease public concern of an Ebola outbreak in the country. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The trial of Rwandan entrepreneur Flex Kabuka, who is accused of genocide and crimes against humanity committed during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, commenced today at the International Residual Mechanism for criminal tribunals in The Hague. Kabuka boycotted the opening hearing. VOS Central Africa Service reporter Venus Inshima Mana discussed with me the significance of the trial and reaction back home in Rwanda. This trial is um, significant in a way that um, it's the long-awaited trial of a man who has been on the run for two decades, uh, and the trial started this morning in The Hague. The eight-year-old uh, Rwandan uh, was charged for several crimes, including the crimes of genocide and uh, the crimes against humanity committed during the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Uh, Kabuga was not in the dock. He says that has been denied the right to choose his own lawyer. He has been assisted so far by Emmanuel Altit, the French lawyer. But uh, he has been fighting to have him replaced by another one of his choice. Uh, and Kabuga has been asking to get access to his uh, bank account to pay, to pay his own lawyer of his choice, but his account and those of uh, uh, close members of his family has been frozen. So despite his absence, Judge Yanni Bonomi said that the trial should start and the prosecution took the stage to, to set out the main element of the case against Felicia Kabuga. Yes, indeed, he boycotted uh, the opening session of his uh, trial and denied all charges, uh, called them uh, uh, lies. He's He's been accused of three counts of genocide and, and more counts of uh, crimes against humanity for uh, allegedly fueling uh, the, the mass atrocities in 1994 in Rwanda. How are people uh, receiving this back at home, and has the Kagame administration issued any statement about this trial? Uh, so far, I haven't seen any statement from the Rwandan government. But uh, the mood in general about this trial is um, in the statement made by Prosecutor Serge Bramert. He said that uh, the victims of Kabuga's crimes and uh, all Rwandan people should be in the forefront of our thoughts. They have awaited 28 years for justice, he said. On another hand, Human Rights Watch said uh, they, they called it a significant step uh, in effort to ensure accountability for planning, ordering, and carrying out the genocide in Rwanda. In Rwanda itself, as you asked, Ibuka, the umbrella of all organizations of survivors of the genocide against the Tutsi, welcomed the trial of the man who was the first 
indicted for genocide by the International Criminal uh, Tribunal for Rwanda. Uh, sorry. Um, yes, I think it was the first um, indicted by the ICTR 25 years ago while he was still on the run. Like 28 years uh, later, how strong do you see the case against Kabuga, and what do you, what should we expect to see in the coming weeks and, and months? What you should expect is, first of all, the evidence that will be produced by the prosecution next week. And then we will see a lot of witnesses. They are talking about at least 50 witnesses who will be coming to testify to say where they have seen Kabuga, where they have heard about him during the 1994 genocide, and even before where he was have been accused of using the radio television Mercolin as a propaganda tool to call for murder of Tutsi That was VOA's Central Africa Service reporter, Venus Nshiamana. He spoke with me earlier today. Six Ugandan medics are receiving treatment and are in isolation after they contracted Ebola. They were exposed to the deadly disease at a referral hospital in Mbende district, which is the epicenter of the current outbreak. Catherine Nambi has the details. Blood samples from the medics were drawn after they performed surgery on a patient who had died during the operation, but later tested positive. Among the infected medics, a senior house officers or SHOs. Dr. Samuel Oledo is the president of Uganda Medical Association. There are three SHOs who worked on that patient. Uh, there was an intern who was assisting. There was an anesthetist who was also giving anesthesia. And basically, that whole team was looking at a condition of obstruction. The patient was having septic shock. BPs were shutting down. He went into cardiac arrest. And they tried to resuscitate him on table. We lost the patient on table. So, suspiciously, samples were picked from that patient. Dr. Oledo blames inadequate personal protective equipment, or PPE, for the exposure of the medics to the hemorrhagic fever. He says some of the infected medics are in critical condition, while others are undergoing clinical care and emotional support at a specialized facility. Two of them are in critically ill. One of them has actually developed bloody diarrhea. The other three are in self-isolation. The infections come just a few days after interns went on strike, fearing for their safety amidst the outbreak. Dr. Oledo has advised medics to be extra cautious and to desist from treating or caring for patients without safety gear. And the personal protective gears should be fully braced from head to toe. Please, you have a mandate. You have a right to stay home if you're being coerced to work on patients without personal protective gears. Emmanuel Ainebiona is the spokesperson for the Ministry of Health. He says medics have also been trained on proper management of Ebola patients and suspected cases without exposing themselves to the disease. We are ensuring that we counsel them such that they are able to uh, respond because all the protective gear 
to safeguard their life is available. We have already put our, our health workers on high alert. They have been trained about the having high levels of suspicion on any persons who might present with Ebola-like symptoms and also take them through on infection prevention and control amongst health workers and also ensuring that when patients report, are well isolated. Jen Ruth Acheng is the Minister of Health. She says the infected medics will receive the necessary support to recuperate. To allay anxiety of our health workers, because some health workers are infected, we want to reassure them that they will be taken care of and given the necessary supportive care and treatment so that we ensure that we don't lose them. But also to continue to encourage them that we can control this epidemic and save Ugandans. The World Health Organization says the risk to public health is especially high since the Sudan strain has no vaccine. According to the WHO, the disease may have been reported late, suggesting it could have started three weeks before the first case was identified on 20th of this month. This is Catherine Nambi for VON News in Kampala. The trial of former Guinea military ruler Musa Dadis Kamra and 10 other men for alleged responsibility for a 2009 stadium massacre and mass rape by security forces began yesterday, but was adjourned by the judge to next week. Security forces fired tear gas and charged the stadium, where tens of thousands of pro-democracy demonstrators were protesting against Kamra's plan to run for president. Prosecutors say... More than 150 were killed, shot, stabbed, beaten and crushed, and at least a dozen women raped by security forces. Charges against Kamara include murder, rape, torture and theft. He denied responsibility and blames errant soldiers for the rampage. Morocco's Prime Minister Aziz Akhanouj told the UN General Assembly that his country is committed to reach a political solution to the dispute over the Western Sahara, based on the Moroccan Initiative of 2007. That initiative offered self-autonomy within the integral sovereignty of Morocco, which he said is backed by over 90 countries. VOS senior analyst Mohamed Shinawi discussed the Moroccan position with William Lawrence, professor of international relations at the university of at the American University in Washington. Well, first of all, only one country recognized Moroccan sovereignty of Western Sahara. That's the United States. And Morocco only controls about 78% of the territory. So when the U.S. recognized Morocco's claim, it didn't say anything about the 22% that um, the Sahrawis control. There's one other country, Spain, which sees the Moroccan autonomy plan as the only serious, credible, and realistic solution to the crisis. But that's even stronger than the U.S. position, which sees the Moroccan autonomy plan as a serious, credible, and realistic solution. There's about 45 countries that officially recognize the Sahara. We claim mostly in Africa and the Muslim world. There's about 49 countries that support Morocco's autonomy plan, of which 
26 have opened consulates in the Moroccan claimed Sahara, whereas the Saharan Arab Democratic Republic operates about 13 embassies and consulates. So the claim is just not correct. The remaining countries I didn't list basically have a neutral position. One country, Peru, just switched its position to recognizing the Sahrawi state in exile. So, you know, the momentum isn't necessarily all with Morocco either. But the important thing here is that Morocco is saying the right things at the United Nations. The UN Secretary General congratulated Morocco for its help on this issue and on Libya. Both sides in the conflict are seeking to win by, let's call it low-intensity war and then negotiations at UN. I think one of the best simple approximations of it was done by a French analyst years ago who said that the Sahrawis have international law on their side and Morocco has geopolitics on its side. And then that poses the question for Morocco, for the US, for Israel, for everyone else. You know, do you want to live in a world primarily governed by international law or do you want to live in a world primarily governed by power politics and political relationships? And therein lies the difficult question. The Moroccan Prime Minister renewed his country's full support of the UN Special Envoy to the Western Sahara to relaunch the roundtable discussions urging Algeria to participate in order to reach a final political settlement to the conflict. Is that feasible? Our discussions are just barely feasible. The solution, however, is highly unlikely. The closest we got to a negotiated settlement ever since the James Baker initiative in the early 1990s was in 2007-2008 in Manhasset, New York, where we had four rounds of negotiations um, sponsored by the United Nations. And basically each side just kept repeating its its hard positions through the whole thing. There were some you know, minor breakthroughs over the years. I was involved in 2005 in the uh, release of the world's longest held POWs by the Sahrawis to the Moroccans. I was involved in the repatriation of them to Morocco. There have been other moments where, for example, cell phones were distributed so the families could talk to each other. Um, These are the longest standing refugees in the world. But basically, in terms of the big picture, negotiations have yielded nothing over the last 30 years and are unlikely to yield anything now. That was William Lawrence, Professor of International Relations at the University at the University of Washington, is speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Ashinawi. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Nabil Biajo in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite v- VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Ethiopia's government-funded Human Rights Commission says security forces killed dozens of civilians following clashes with rebels in the country's Gambela region in June. Fred Harder reports from Addis Ababa. According to the state-appointed rights bodies report published Thursday, the killings happened after an hours-long gun battle on June 14th between regional security forces and militants from the Oromo Liberation Army and the Gambela Liberation Front. After the OLA and GLF militants withdrew from the city, Gambela Regional Security Force members searched houses and targeted civilians, whom they accused of harbouring weapons and fighters, the Rights Commission said. The 13-page report concluded at least 50 civilians were killed individually and in mass extrajudicial executions by regional security forces between June 14 and June 16. The bodies were then buried en masse, with relatives denied access to them, said the commission, which also found that security force members had looted homes. 
At the time, a Gambella city resident told VOA that he could hear sporadic shooting from his home in the days following the rebel group's assault. Abella Dane, the Gambella office heads for the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, said the killings took place in several locations across the city. Some people were killed at their homes and some others were killed when they were walking on the streets of the town. For instance, one of the findings of our report showed that one special force in the city, police of the regional government, killed at least 11 civilians all just in one house. Abel added that several other people were taken to the local police commission where they were subsequently killed. The report from the Human Rights Commission was based on interviews with 58 people, including eyewitnesses and relatives of victims. It also concluded that the OLA and GLF rebel groups killed seven civilians while in the city, adding that six more people died after they were caught in crossfire. A message to a government spokesperson requesting comments went unanswered. Gambella's Regional Police Commission has said the rebels were responsible for the killings in the town. Fred Harter for VUA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. A man who hates black people and planned to overthrow South Africa's government with a series of terror attacks has been sentenced to two life terms plus 21 years. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa. Harry Knudsen, 63, was the leader of the National Christian Resistance Movement, also known as the Crusaders. He claimed that God had ordained that he should reclaim South Africa for white people. A statement from the National Prosecuting Authority says these highly racial views were his motivation for wanting to overthrow the government and kill African people. He planned to attack national key points and military and police installations, as well as informal settlements where blacks live. The prosecuting authority says he explored the possibility of using a biological weapon and had discussions about arranging urban warfare training. He was arrested on November 28, 2019. Hawke spokesperson Brigadier Tandi Mbambo has more. The accused prepared and planned to carry out terrorist attacks on government by overthrowing the democratically elected government. The NPA spokesperson Monica Nuswa explains the charges. Nusen was convicted of contravention of preparing and planning to carry out terrorist attacks, incitement to carry out a terrorist attack in South Africa, recruitment of persons to carry out terrorist attacks in South Africa, unlawful possession of a firearm, and unlawful possession of ammunition. The accused was further declared unfit to possess a firearm as part of the sentence. While two of his co-defendants admitted guilt, Knudsen denied all charges and was convicted on June 6. After sentencing yesterday, his application for leave to appeal his sentence and conviction was dismissed. The Director of Public Prosecutions in Mpumalanga, Advocate Nkebe Kanyane, and the Hawks National Head, Lieutenant General Godfrey Lebea, have expressed satisfaction with the sentence. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. A Zimbabwe court has found author Sitsi Dangaremwa and co-defendant Julie Barnes guilty for involvement in a 2020 anti-corruption demonstration in Harare where they were arrested. I spoke with reporter Godwin Mangutka, who attended the ruling in Harare. Yeah, I'm just at the courthouse here in Harare and the, the magistrate, Barbara Mateko, 
as convicted the truth is and the Julia Bans of inciting public violence and they've been sentenced to seventy thousand Zimbabwean dollars, which is about one hundred and US dollars. And if they fail to pay that fine, that fine they will be jailed for three months. They've also been given another suspended sentence of six months uh, on condition that they do not commit a similar offense in the next five years. Yes, uh, how significant is this ruling? It is uh, quite significant, uh, significant in that this Tangarim herself says in a fund to meet their freedom, and uh, she says this clearly shows that uh, Zimbabweans are no longer allowed communicate to themselves uh, uh, like what they did because they argued that they were just demonstrating peacefully, they were not violent, and they were not inciting any violence. And what is next after this? Well, the, the truth, Sidangarimba and the Julia Banks intend to appeal uh, the, the ruling that is the conviction and the sentence. That was reporter Godwin Manguchka speaking with me earlier from the courthouse in Harare. The UN Refugee Agency says nearly 6,000 Congolese refugees have been helped to return home since December 2021 after years in exile in Zambia. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Voluntary repatriation of Congolese refugees was based on a tripartite agreement signed in 2006 by the UNHCR and the governments of Zambia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The refugees have fled political and inter-ethnic clashes in the DRC's southeast region in 2017. They've gone back to their communities of origin in Okatanga. Many parts of the DRC are riven with conflict and remain highly insecure. However, UNHCR spokesman Boris Cheshekov says Okatanga is stable, making the returns possible. He says some 600 people are transported from Zambia on buses in weekly convoys to the DRC's Lukinda border post. He says more than 11,000 Congolese refugees are expected to have gone back to the DRC by the end of the year. Refugees have been issued with voluntary repatriation documents and have received expedited immigration clearance, health screening, security food and water prior to their journey. Children account for 60% of those refugees that are now returning. Cheshikov says children born in Zambia have been issued birth certificates as proof of their identity. He says the Ministry of Education has issued transfer documents to school children so they can continue their education in the DRC. He notes the refugees have expressed excitement and joy at returning home. He says they look forward to reuniting with family and friends and starting their lives anew. He says the UNHCR is providing returnees with cash assistance to help them cover basic expenses upon arrival. It also helps them with transportation costs to to reach their ultimate destination. Um, They're able to purchase hygiene items, household items, and, and then to pay their own 
uh, first rent, which uh, gives them a step uh, in the right direction. And then based on family size, they're also provided with a package that includes pulses and maize meal, oil and, uh, and salt and, and other uh, basics that will help them uh, to move in. Cheshikov says the UNHCR continues to work with local and traditional authorities. He says the agency also conducts monitoring missions to the locations to make sure the returns are sustainable. Zambia currently hosts more than 95,600 refugees, asylum seekers, and former refugees. They include just over 60,000 from DRC. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Nabil Biagio in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of studio engineer Cornelius Tanner and producer Mokbil Yabaro, thank you again for tuning in and for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>